From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is away. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Expectations based on historical precedent have been failing us all year. They failed again this week as Hurricane Harvey supersaturated southeast Texas. As the water rose in Houston and across Harris County, reporters and meteorologists struggled to describe a deluge of nigh-on to biblical proportions. Already calling Harvey unprecedented and beyond anything experienced. In Harris County alone, a trillion gallons of rain has fallen over four days, which is more than flows over Niagara Falls in two weeks. Put this in perspective, the National Weather Service today added two new colors to its rainfall charts, including light pink, which signals 30 inches or more, and 40 inches have fallen in Dayton, Texas. There is some precedent, however, to the whole country watching on in horror. 12 years ago, nearly to the day, we were gripped by another disaster in the Gulf called Katrina. And like Harvey, that disaster exposed a flaw in engineering. In New Orleans, it was the levees. In Houston, it's the city itself. Nina Satija is an investigative reporter and producer for the Texas Tribune and Reveal. Last year, she co-wrote a piece called Boomtown Floodtown about unbridled development in Houston and what might happen if a big storm hit a city built on swamp and prairie. It was a hauntingly prescient piece of reporting. We can't predict where exactly rain will fall, how much rain will fall, and what rate it will fall. So all we could say in our piece is that Houston is going to see one of these catastrophic, intense rainstorms. And that's certainly what happened this week. And what was going on when you wrote it last year? Last year, we wrote our piece in the wake of a couple of other catastrophic floods Houston had seen that really crippled the city. There were the tax day floods in April of 2016, the Memorial Day floods in May of 2015. Those were also, at the time, considered very rare events. You quote in that piece Sam Brody, a Texas A&M University at Galveston researcher, and he wrote that more people die here than anywhere else from floods. More property per capita is lost here, and the problem's getting worse. Why? Number one, more people are moving to the area. So inevitably, you're building more structures, you're putting more people in harm's way. Also, when they move here, they're not educated about the issue. Their realtor doesn't tell them, for instance, that even if they don't live in that 100-year floodplain where you're required to get flood insurance, they should probably get flood insurance because much of the flooding is happening outside of the floodplain. People are moving into areas like the reservoirs. They're paving over prairie land that could have absorbed some of these floodwaters. Now, I want to be clear, there was going to be damage from this storm no matter what, even if Houston had developed differently. This is a historic amount of rainfall. But things could have been different if Houston had developed better. And the final thing I'll say is climate change. Scientists overwhelmingly agree that climate change is a factor in a storm like this, and it's been a factor in the other two storms I mentioned. Three years before Katrina, the uh, New Orleans Times-Picayune did a series looking at what would happen to the city if it were hit by a hurricane and didn't make a big difference there. Is there some sort of resistance to this information? There absolutely is resistance. You know, a few years ago, the state actually tried to put up signposts in Houston saying how high the water would go in a storm surge situation. So not the rainfall we've been experiencing, but storm surge from a hurricane. And there was so much pushback from realtors and other businesses, they had to take them down. In the Atlantic, Alexis Madrigal spoke to an editor of a book of essays called Environmental Disaster in the Gulf South. And there was the suggestion that there's something about the culture of the Gulf region in general that resists being told what to do by pointy-headed experts. Local officials that we've talked to and statewide elected officials have a real pride being Texans. Texas has a long history of defying the federal government, being bothered by the federal government telling it what to do. Now, you know, there are many climate scientists, world-renowned climate scientists based right here in Texas who work at public universities that are funded by the state who are saying we need to be paying more attention to this. City officials there, though, in Houston have accused these experts of being uh, anti-development, using climate change as a way to further their agenda. 
They have, specifically the former head of the Harris County Flood Control District, which is home to Houston. He told us he felt as though scientists and some what he called environmentalists are using science for what he called an anti-development agenda. They don't want to grow. They don't want their neighborhoods to change. If you don't have a consensus about what needs to be fixed, then you're never going to be able to fix it. Some of it is money. Scientists and experts have told us that we need very strong political leadership, both at the local level and at the state level in Texas, to go to the federal government and ask for an enormous amount of money, not just for recovery, and that's going to cost a lot already, but also for prevention. We've been experiencing the effects of climate change now, we know, for quite some time. But even without climate change in the picture, some of the storms that Houston has experienced in the past 50 years, you know, the public would have to be willing to pay to try to prevent some damage from those storms. And it's probably not enough to prevent all damage. It's a very, very difficult question. I don't think anyone would argue that Hurricane Harvey and the rainfall it brought to Houston is a completely man-made situation. Certainly, it's it's a combination of nature and climate change and development that made the severity of that storm worse. In the piece you wrote last year, you talked about the county official Mike Talbot's insistence that these were rare events. What's it going to take, do you think, to get the city to move? Maybe this is the storm. You talked about Mark Schlefstein's piece in the New Orleans Times-Picayune about Katrina. They knew that this was going to be a catastrophe were it to hit. The Army Corps knew about the levees problems, and nothing was done until they broke. People don't start to turn around their thinking until the calamity hits. It could be this storm that convinces some of the officials we spoke to that we maybe can't start thinking about these as rare events anymore. And certainly other cities are acting a little differently. We spoke with climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe. She's consulting with a number of cities, including the city of Austin, Texas, the city of San Angelo, Texas, which is a much smaller city in West Texas, and cities all over the country. They're preparing for more frequent and intense rainfall. Nina, thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me. Nina Satija is an investigative reporter and producer for the Texas Tribune and Reveal. For media professionals, hurricanes offer the very best kind of bad news because the story arc is predictable and invariably compelling. First, the gripping countdown as the storm approaches the coast, then shaky shots of tumbling cars and heroic rescue operations, survivors surveying the wreckage, tears of rage and grief. It doesn't seem hard to understand. But in fact, it is. And it's harder still to learn from. So as the weather wreaks havoc at ever-increasing rates, we offer you, our listeners, the latest in our series of breaking news consumers' handbooks, American Storm Edition. About 24.5 trillion gallons of water fell on southeast Texas and southern Louisiana this week. Water levels reached over 50 inches in Houston. And the media drew on statistical jargon to convey just how rare that was. At this hour, the flooding that is taking place there is being called a 500-year flood, historic. That would be an 800-year flood event. It's got to be a 500-year flood or a 1,000-year flood. It's ridiculous. One thing that really bothers me when I see people calling it a thousand-year flood. We don't have enough data to really know what the 500-year flood is. Dr. Robert Holmes is the National Flood Hazard Coordinator for the U.S. Geological Survey. The 100-year flood has a 1 in 100 percent chance of occurring in any given year. Technically, a 1 percent annual exceedance probability, which means it has a 1 percent chance. We use existing data that we've been collecting And in some cases, we have 100 years. In many more cases, it's much less than that. So we're using 40 to 50 years of data to project out and figure out statistically what is a true 100-year flood. It's a huge amount of uncertainty. So saying anything more than it's greater than a 100-year flood, it really bothers me. Yeah, so what we're saying is those numbers really aren't that good. Well, the more data we've got, the better the estimate. But they don't really say what... It sounds like they say. Well, what people think they say is that 
we're 100% sure what the 100-year flood is. We have uncertainty. And what we do as engineers and scientists is when we give you an estimate of that 100-year flood value, we're also going to give you an uncertainty band. We might tell you that the 100-year flood is X, but there's a boundary around that that says the true answer lies within these. How do we deal with the problem that a 100-year flood, heard casually, suggests that it's a flood that occurs every 100 years, as opposed to the idea that there is a 1% chance that this flood could occur every year? We're doing the best we can to educate the public, trying to get that idea across. So that's point one. The one in a century or five or ten century storm designation, often used to determine whether you have to buy flood insurance, may be based on the scantiest of data, which is why those probabilities come with a warning label that you never get to hear. Moving on. Over the course of the week, Harvey lived, thrived, and died, as storms do. This is the radar view of what is Hurricane Harvey. As you just mentioned, downgraded now to a Category 2 from the Category 4 landfall, and it is rapidly starting to weaken. And you Hurricane Harvey has been downgraded to a Category 1 storm, but it is still slamming the Gulf Texas coast right now. Well, Hurricane Harvey has now weakened to a tropical storm, but the authorities in the United States are warning that Texas will be hit with catastrophic and life-threatening flooding. It has been downgraded to a tropical depression, but it's still packing plenty of rainfall as it moves eastward. We think we know what that means, but those categories refer only to wind, which is crucial. It's also point two. A downgraded storm can be as deadly, even deadlier, than those categories suggest. Gina Esco is a risk communication consultant currently working with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Hurricanes encompass many risks, not only wind, but storm surge, inland rain and flooding, which we're seeing uh, devastatingly with Harvey, as well as tornadoes, which we've also seen quite a bit with Harvey. But journalists love to go out in the wind. In fact, during a storm on the East Coast some years back, our own Bob Garfield went out on his deck just to sound windblown. I'm standing here on the deck of my home in Virginia being buffeted by the rain and wind of Hurricane Isabel. I'm here because I live here, but it's an image that you're probably not unfamiliar with these past few days. Do you think the problem isn't so much with the emphasis on wind, but on the word downgrade? When a hurricane is downgraded to a tropical storm, there's something inherent in that word that suggests the worst is over. Last Saturday morning, that was my issue. I looked at the national headlines, and what I saw was the following. Harvey downgraded just a tropical storm. And I thought, oh, no. But why? It's an invitation, in my opinion, potentially, to return to daily activities. And I didn't want one piece of our message to indicate that the risk has been lowered. Amid the uncertainty of catastrophic weather events, news media can have a hard time saying no to stories about chaos and criminality. Now, as the situation continues to worsen, Houston law enforcement has set its sights on saving lives and preventing looters. We've got uh, armed robbers last night, in the middle of the night. Does anybody have the courage to say you're not allowed to steal or hurt other people just because there was a storm? Yeah, I mean, what kind of like certifiable savage man beast do you need to be to walk into a small business? And there are videos of this on Twitter. Sadly, I wish I, you know, you can't unsee it. Point three. Looting and violence are the exception, not the rule. Disasters usually bring out the best in people. Fifty years of social science research indicates that widespread looting is really pretty much a myth. That's Scott Knowles, professor of history at Drexel University and author of The Disaster Experts, Mastering Risk in Modern America. Looting gets to the media's responsibility to be very careful in the way it portrays neighborhoods that have low socioeconomic status or neighborhoods that are diverse. There's pretty good evidence, looking at Hurricane Sandy, for example, that crime can actually go down in the midst of a disaster. People want to help. 
And that is at the local level, you helping your neighbor. It's at the neighborhood level, and it could be at the citywide level. And the media has a responsibility here to be very nuanced in the way it talks about crime in the midst of a disaster, which is that if people are overly concerned about that, they may not evacuate. So beware coverage that focuses on the rare case of crime in stressful situations. The same goes for coverage that judges those who stay in harm's way. That's point four. Houston did not declare mandatory evacuation ahead of Harvey. But residents who declined to evacuate, even under orders during Matthew in 2016 and Katrina in 2005, were met with public scorn. Many, many, many of the poor in New Orleans are in that condition. They weren't going to leave no matter what you did. They were drug addicted. They weren't going to get turned off from their source. They were thugs, whatever. Despite the warnings, lots of people here in the United States have said they're not going anywhere. We will not cover your funerals and we will not feel sorry for you. They're stocking up supplies, boarding up their homes, and hoping, which is moronic. Senator Rick Santorum even suggested imposing penalties on people who decided to stay in New Orleans. Scott Knowles. Some people can't leave their homes because of disability or because they have chronic illness. Some of it has to do with being poor, not having a car, not being able to miss work. All sorts of things that make evacuation, which seems so simple, actually very complicated. Absolutely. I mean, we also have to take into account that people living in Houston, just like people living in New Orleans, they're habituated to the risk of flood. And, you know, there's something a little ironic about this. We want people to be able to manage psychologically the risks of the cities in which they live. If people were constantly falling to pieces in Los Angeles every time there were a tremor, it wouldn't be possible to have people living in Los Angeles. So then the government has this very difficult task to say, most days, don't worry about it. But on this day, worry (laughs) about it. Many people who stayed in New Orleans through Katrina told reporters that, hey, I was here during Hurricane Betsy. And, yeah, it was bad, and we survived. Another reason to withhold judgment and discount reporting that does? The poor are disproportionately affected by big storms because the cheaper parts of town tend to be the most vulnerable to flooding. Faulty infrastructure and zoning laws that place people in harm's way are products of social inequality, not Mother Nature. Which is point five. There is no such thing as a natural disaster. This morning, the city of Houston wakes up under a mandatory curfew as authorities focus on public safety during one of America's worst natural disasters. Natural disaster is a very problematic term because it seems to take human agency out of the equation. I actually prefer the term slow disaster as a way to get us thinking that disasters are not one-off events. If we think about Houston and Hurricane Harvey, Maybe we should talk about a 100-year process of land development and industrial change and industrial development on the Gulf Coast as a way to understand why the water is where it is and why it's so risky to have that kind of flooding in this very densely packed industrial part of the United States. The various conditions that made southeast Texas ripe for such a huge flood were covered by many news outlets throughout the week. But... As in any big storm, the news was dominated by the heroes, the first responders, the Coast Guard crews who saved thousands of people in Houston this week. The Coast Guard spent the last 24 hours pulling people off roofs in Houston as Harvey left many residents with no way to go but up to safety. They're operating in visibility less than a mile in some cases, winds gusting over 30 miles per hour. It's it's, it's very dangerous. Reporters focused on their risky campaigns because it's cinematic and it makes us feel good. But consider the consequences of the hero narrative. In effect, says Knowles, we're asking our first responders to pay the price for larger systemic problems. I think when we talk about first responders as heroes, we also need to ask a deeper question about why we're putting them in harm's way in the first place. Well, we're doing it to save people. (laughs) Absolutely. But... You know, I'm still haunted by photos of firemen going up the staircase in the World Trade Towers on September 11. The fire department in New York knew that it was going to be very difficult to put out fires in those buildings, and yet they went anyway, and that's their duty. And in the culture of first responders, you know, complaining is not part of it. 
So I think it does fall to the media, and I think it falls to the public to ask these questions about whether or not we're putting them in too much danger. Do we want to have them be so heroic? And are we treating them after disaster the way that they should be treated? Are they getting the kind of post-traumatic stress counseling they may need or the health support that they may need as disasters become more frequent? I'm going to keep Professor Knowles here with me for a while because the last couple of points in our handbook are about politics. I believe that disasters reveal society. They are opportunities for us to actually pull back the curtain and see what some of the deeper commitments and values of a society actually are. So news consumers can expect to see themselves or their nation in the mirror of that coverage. And that's often, I think, surprising to people because they think of a disaster as an apolitical event. We should rally around our community and not talk about politics. But disasters show us where people live, why they live there, and what kind of dangers they may face because of where they live. That's deeply political. Disasters reveal to us whether or not we've invested enough in our civil society? Do we have the kind of health care that we need? Do we have the kind of environmental protection that we need? And because disasters are so complex, it's all sort of revealed at once. You've observed that conservative outlets tend to focus on the looting, the sense of panic, you say, a sense that we need strong law enforcement. And, and the liberals will say this is a flawed government approach, ignoring the needs of the poor and the disadvantaged. It's predictable. This sort of partisanship is understandable, and it's understandable that the media wants to cover that. But what I like to see is a much closer look at local politics, particularly around things that may not seem so flashy, like infrastructure spending or zoning or the legacies of racial segregation, for example, the politics that actually matter in the midst of and after disaster, not whether or not the president looked presidential when he was standing in the rubble or in front of the firehouse. As Congress begins drafting an emergency Harvey relief bill, what sort of rhetoric should we expect? I think we're into a new period in American history here. Generally, discussions around relief have been opportunities for members of Congress to show convivial attitudes. You know, you have a senator from one part of the country joining hands with a senator from another part of the country and reaching across the aisle and drafting bills they can support one another. That held through Hurricane Katrina. With Hurricane Sandy, we saw something very different. The response from Congress was slow, partisan, and the vote that uh, passed the final Hurricane Sandy relief bill broke along party lines. Critics of the bill were saying there's so many things in here that are pork, that are not related to the disaster. And that reflects, I think, a pretty consistent ideology of many conservatives who don't think the government should be much involved in infrastructure spending or science spending or health spending. A lot of that relief bill was focused on dealing with the deferred maintenance of the transportation system, for example, in New York and New Jersey. Almost all of the bill, whether it was marked for infrastructure or science, had to do with repairing damage, direct damage. Yeah, there's no evidence that the money that was spent was pork in any way. But that reflects an idea that I have, that the government has a role in keeping our infrastructure in good shape, for example. And so what you'll see play out, I think, with the Harvey relief bill is that Democrats will want to see spending that can have a long-term impact on making the next storm less costly. The real thing to watch for will be fights within the Republican Party as to what exactly should disaster relief be. There is one ideological viewpoint that says that disaster relief should be sandbags and water and temporary shelter, and that's about it. Leave the rest of it to the churches, to the communities, to the city, to the local taxpayers, and maybe the state. There will be other Republicans who will take a different attitude, and that's how we will predict, I think, the size of the Hurricane Harvey relief. There's another aspect of this that's playing out at the state level, Houston is a democratic city. The majority of citizens of Houston did not vote for President Trump and for the current governor. 
So you're going to see debates playing out at the federal level, but also at the state level about, well, does Houston really deserve all of this money and will it be well spent? Disasters are sort of a master class in American federalism. Understanding it in that way shows us, again, that disasters reveal the way we think about the welfare state, environmental protection, or economic growth. One last question. How do you expect global warming to figure into the coverage, and how do you think it should? I've been fascinated to see a pretty high level of discussion and many stories about this very question Can we attribute the ferocity of the storm and the amount of water to climate change? That, to me, is a very hopeful sign that the media actually is capable of doing event-level reporting and slow disaster reporting at the same time. Because climate change is a classic example of a slow disaster distributed around the world. The direct connection is difficult, and yet it's impossible to not see that these storms are getting worse, more frequent, and the changing climate certainly must have some role to play in that. So on Wednesday, Craig Fugate, who was the previous FEMA administrator, sent out a really remarkable tweet. He said, my challenge to emergency managers, can you say climate change and climate-related impacts are happening? And then he asks, under political pressure not to. With the tweet, Fugate is basically challenging the emergency management community to actually be honest. If the political winds of the administration are blowing against belief in climate change, do you have the courage to say you believe in it? That's a pretty provocative statement. Scott, thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Scott Knowles is a professor of history at Drexel University and the author of The Disaster Experts, Mastering Risk in Modern America. Coming up, a look back at a great unjust laying of blame amid the tragedy of Katrina. This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Much of what we've seen and heard about the devastation in Houston evokes the memories of Hurricane Katrina exactly a dozen years ago. Submerged homes, families wading through the flood, and the elderly waiting for rescue. The picture, heartbreaking. Senior citizens, some in wheelchairs, trapped in the Lavita Bella nursing home just outside Houston. One woman seems to be calmly knitting in her recliner as the water rises. I have to say, when we saw this picture on social media, a lot of us said, is this real? Because it looks fake. I mean, you just would never imagine you know, seeing I something it, like this. Yeah. That troubling image from Dickinson, Texas, went viral before its residents were rescued last Sunday. The episode recalled one of the biggest tragedies of Katrina. The elderly or infirm stuck in hospitals or nursing homes with water levels rising and options shrinking. It's a trauma that led to one of Katrina's most widely misreported stories which took place in St. Bernard's Parish, a New Orleans suburb, and involved the deaths of 35 elderly residents of St. Rita's Nursing Home. The owners, Sal and Mabel Mangano, decided it was safer not to evacuate their residents, despite warnings from local officials. The morning of August 29, 2005, after Katrina made landfall, it seemed like they had survived the worst. But then the levees broke. The coverage of the incident was wall-to-wall and mostly wrong. 
Some say that 34 senior citizens were left to die in their uh, Louisiana nursing home. These two owners that made money off all of these elderly nursing home citizens were out shopping, shopping after all of these elderlies died. The Manganos were charged with 35 counts of negligent homicide. We spoke with their lawyer, James Cobb, back in 2015. And while Katrina and Harvey are fundamentally different disasters, Cobb's book, Flood of Lies, the St. Rita's Nursing Home Tragedy, offers a cautionary tale of how swiftly misinformation turns to blame in tragedy's wake. He said he first learned about St. Rita's, like everyone else, on TV. Some stories said that these people left the residence. They tied them to their wheelchairs and beds. I turned to my wife and said, why bother with a trial? They ought to just take these folks out and shoot them. Mabel calls you. She's 62. Sal is 65. What does she tell you? She says, we are in desperate trouble. We've been recommended to you by the president of the Nursing Home Association. Will you help us? And without talking to my wife, which got me in trouble later on, I immediately said, I will. Why? Lawyers are supposed to represent the unpopular cause. And I firmly believed in that from the time John Adams defended the soldiers in the Boston Massacre. Everybody thought they were guilty, too. But you know what? They were acquitted. (laughs) Meanwhile, it was reported that the Manganos tried to flee to Mexico on a cruise ship, that they were out shopping, that they were gambling. Without any factual support in the media whatsoever, Sal and Mabel stayed with their residents. They swam out and saved 24 lives with old people on their backs, lifting them into boats, putting on top of roofs. And yet they were bludgeoned in the press. It was the government and the media's attempt to put the sins of Katrina on somebody. And they put it on Sal and Mabel. So on September 12th, 2005, Nancy Grace calls for Lady Justice to bring down the hammer. (laughs) That's exactly right. And and the next day you find out that your clients have been charged with 34 counts of negligent homicide. Polling data suggested that almost three-quarters of the potential jurors in the area believe that the Manganos were guilty. So tell me about your strategy. This is a great old saying from my colleague Bob Habens. If you're defending a criminal case, find someone else to prosecute and do a better job of prosecuting them than the government does in prosecuting you. So we prosecuted the United States government, the Army Corps of Engineers, the state of Louisiana, its emergency operation command system. We put them on trial. When the House and the Senate of the United States Congress investigated this, Kathleen Blanco, the governor of Louisiana at the time, said the following, and I quote, We in Louisiana know hurricanes. And hurricanes know us. We would not be here today if the levees had not failed. And I asked her on the witness stand, did you say that, Governor? She said, I did. I said, was it true then? It was. Is it true today? She says it is. And I walked over to Sally Mabel at the council table. I put one hand on one shoulder, one hand on the other. And I asked her, and they wouldn't be here either if the levees had not failed, would they? Objection. But the point was made. If you thought she was a bad governor, you should have seen her as a witness. (laughs) The jury went out maybe at 5 o'clock in the evening. By 8 o'clock, they had a verdict. Generally speaking, in long trials, if a jury comes back quickly, that's not good for the defendant. So my heart sank. And when he said, we the jury find the defendants not guilty, I almost fell over. Sal and Mabel did fall over, fell into each other's arms. It was no triumph in us winning the case, okay? There was no joy. It was just sadness. The courtroom was packed with two or 300 spectators, family members of the victims, friends and supporters of the Manganos. The room sobbed. After the verdict, how did the media respond? They disappeared. <laughs> There was no retrospective of how could we have been so wrong. There were no post-mortems of, gee whiz, how did this happen? You told ABC News that virtually everyone remembers the event, 
But when you ask them if they can recall the outcome... They'll say, oh, yeah, I remember that where the old people died. They drowned. Yeah. How did that turn out? But if anybody guesses as to whether they were guilty or not guilty, they guess they were guilty. Would you attribute that directly to the lack of media coverage? The blanket wall-to-wall coverage early on in the case where the presumption of innocence was destroyed and the presumption of guilt was established. Because what we do as human beings when we hear a story, we form a judgment. And then we don't change our mind, do we? So what are the lessons that you think we should draw? I can't tell you how many folks who've read my book have said, I will never again believe the media in the beginnings of a case where they try to cast somebody as responsible. Katrina, because it was such a visual event, the gripping pictures of people on top of rooftops, people at the Superdome, people at the convention center, people drowning, people dying of thirst. The competition among television was so intense. They often ran with something without any second sourcing, any verification, nothing. You still have to wonder. A health official said... We have two buses we can give you. You can get those people out of there before the storm Mm -hmm. hits. Why didn't they evacuate? That was the $64,000 question. Number one, the health official who testified at trial, I offered them buses, and I talked to Mabel. Mabel said he never talked to me. He might have talked to a nurse, but he didn't talk to me. Wasn't there a mandatory evacuation? Answer, no. New Orleans, for the first time in the history of my city, had a mandatory evacuation for Katrina. St. Bernard Parish, lower, wetter, surrounded by water, never, ever went mandatory. But why did they stay? At the critical moment, they were conflicted. They knew they had five or six or seven patients. If they put them on buses for 10, 12-hour trip that usually takes an hour to Baton Rouge, people would die. And Mabel's reluctance was... How do I go down the hall and start unplugging patients? And who do I unplug first, Jim? Your mother? They'd survive tropical storms, tropical depressions, hurricanes, and never got a drop of water in the parking lot. So in that terrible moment of choice, she went with what had worked before. What got the residents at St. Rita was the collapse of the federal levies, which the federal government told us would hold. How many nursing homes in New Orleans didn't evacuate? 36 out of 57 did not evacuate. How many suffered casualties? A good half a dozen or more. How many nursing home proprietors were charged? Sal and Mabel. And they're the only ones charged in Katrina with alleged criminal responsibility They should have charged the Army Corps of Engineers, the commanders and the other folks who built these levees that just collapsed before they reached design criteria for over 1,800 deaths. But they went as far down the food chain as they could possibly go. And they picked on a blue-collar mom-and-pop, grandma-and-grandpa in St. Bernard Parish. Thank you very much. Look forward to hearing your show. James Cobb is the author of Flood of Lies, the St. Rita's Nursing Home Tragedy. He's been a practicing trial attorney for nearly 40 years. Coming up, traditional conservatives were the last to jump on the Trump train. But despite a bumpy August, they are in no rush to jump off. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, 
A large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. So the time has come to bid farewell to a turbulent August. And I know we've said this time and time again, but I'll say it again. There was a turning point in the last couple of weeks for Donald Trump about his support for the American people. He did cross that red line when it came to race. The breaking point for most came when Trump said blame for the violence fell on both sides. I think yesterday's very angry press conference by the president of the United States here at Trump Tower was the breaking point for many of these CEOs. This honestly to me feels like where you've seen the biggest breaking point between members of Congress and the Trump administration. But don't unbuckle that seatbelt. There's more rough road ahead. Before leaving the payroll, Steve Bannon, quote, repeatedly warned Mr. Trump and John F. Kelly, the White House chief of staff, that September could be the breaking point for the Trump presidency, a total meat grinder. The former White House chief strategist foretold a month crammed with tight deadlines for tough legislative priorities, like the debt ceiling, the budget, rewriting the tax code. Even as Trump, the punk president, gleefully and repeatedly hurls himself from the podium into a mosh pit roiling with traditional conservatives, freedom partiers, and his own politically ambiguous base. Noah Rothman, a traditional conservative at the durably neoconservative commentary magazine, told us a few months back the time was running out for the president to enact key parts of the conservative agenda. We checked back with him this week, and he doesn't hold out much hope for a tax code rewrite in September, either. I'm not alone in thinking that this thing's just not going to happen. I don't really think that there's enough time in the calendar before we get into a really dense political season with a lot of pitfalls and landmines. Republicans and Democrats alike are going to be posturing and not interested in pursuing votes that could backfire on them. Back when you were on the show in May, you said this. No one is happy right now who's honest on the right. People who are, say, on my side are very frustrated. The alt-right is miserable. They are beside themselves. Has anything changed then? Uh, Things have changed, actually. The Defenestration of virtually everyone who represents the nationalist populist wing of the party, with the exception of former Jeff Sessions staffer Stephen Miller, is a welcome development for the traditional conservative wing of the party, the wing of the party that was skeptical of Donald Trump to begin with. We're talking Sebastian Gorka and Steve Bannon being shown the door. Right. This, you think, is a positive sign for people. Others on the left suggest that the president doesn't need those guys because he embodies those things. Yeah, I don't think that's unfair criticism because the removal of Steve Bannon from his position as chief strategist for this White House hasn't affected any real policy changes or personality changes on the part of the president. It's always going to be his administration. But it also suggests we were purging all of the old Bolsheviks. Bolsheviks, you mean extremists. The really prominent figures. And this was a group of individuals that had come to terms with Donald Trump early. The Republican Party was not really on board with Donald Trump until he became the nominee. So anybody who was on board before he became the nominee was the B team. What's changed then? There's no indication that there's going to be a change in policy or behavior in the White House because of these departures. Well, there is. I'll give you an anecdote. Axios reported the other day, very well-sourced, that the president had something of a tantrum when he was assessing the landscape of his policies on trade. He said he wanted tariffs. He wanted tariffs. I want tariffs. tariffs. Gives me where are my tariffs? The president isn't getting what he wants because the Republican Party doesn't want that. The president issues a tweet in the middle of the morning, a scandal-plagued morning, in which he says, you know what, we're going to stop the transgender enrollments in the military. There was no DOD memo. There was nothing to back that up. A month later, he issues a guideline, and his secretary of defense says, no, we're going to keep doing the review that we've been doing for the last six months. Mm -hmm. This president is a weak president. He doesn't have control of his own party. He barely has control of his own administration. 
and the people who do have control of the administration are of a more responsible sort. You're saying people should be happier now. Well, I'm happier now. But your agenda isn't going to be enacted. Well, I, I resigned myself to that some time ago. You did? <laughs> yes. You wrote recently that the pardoning of former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio has the potential to reverberate in ways few Republicans are able to envision. Why do you think that decision is bigger than the Republicans realize? Well, because I was among many Republicans, many conservatives on the right, who spent the majority of the Obama administration castigating the liberal commentariat for seeing racism in shadows. Institutional racism was pervasive. Racists spoke to one another in code, code that only they could decipher, and yet the only people who were deciphering it were the people criticizing it. It was a hard case for the left to make, and it was one I thought was overblown. Now, with the president wrapping his arms around somebody who legitimately presided over what courts and Republican-appointee judges say represents institutional racial discrimination among law enforcement, Republicans are now compelled to own that. They've spent the last 30 years walking away from this, and now they have to defend it. You charged that it was long the Democrats' view that the rule of law is invalid if it doesn't reflect the policy goals they want. Now you're saying uh, Republicans have also embraced this very idea. Yeah, this was the conservative objection to Donald Trump during the primaries, that his relatively poor understanding of conservatism, of the system in general, <laughs> the Constitution, the rule of law, would tarnish the brand, an already poorly understood brand. And the demands of tribalism are forcing Republicans who know better to be muted in their criticisms of those divergences from orthodoxy. And you fear it might tar the Republican Party for a long time, and yet the Republican leaders didn't flinch that much when the pardon came down. Paul Ryan did put out a statement that he doesn't agree. Trump antagonist Jeff Flake said that he would have preferred the president honor the judicial process. Seems a little weak tea to me. Well, it is no small thing for the Speaker of the House, for members of the Senate, for members of his own administration to be sort of tepid about the nature of this decision. And it is a terrible decision. But the nature of their antipathy towards this president is itself extraordinary. And I frankly don't think Republicans get nearly enough credit for the amount of effort they put into boxing in the head of their own party, who's only seven months into his administration. Well, that leads inevitably to this question then. You said that the Republican leadership would stay behind Trump, or at least bear with him, as long as they could see him as expedient in getting their legislative priorities through, like rewriting the tax code. But he hasn't, and September doesn't look promising. And then, of course, there is a drumbeat of stories about presidential self-dealing and contacts with Russia, wearing hats that he's selling on his website to Texas ravaged by Harvey, and, and all these other things. This is an unprecedented presidency, wouldn't you say? Surely. Do you think that it's going to take a bad midterm election for the Republicans to finally open themselves up to impeachment possibilities? Oh, yeah. And I, I don't even know if that'll do it. You have to reach the point of diminishing returns. I don't believe we're anywhere near that point for conservatives. That's the question. What is that point? When they realize that the agenda will not be fulfilled and hope springs eternal. So we are considering now that there is always an opportunity, as long as the majorities are in place, to secure some sort of a conservative victory out of the 2016 election. Until that point comes, there will be no abandoning Donald Trump, no matter how much he uh, offends norms and uh, typical behavior expected of a president. The mainstream media keep calling every event a turning point. I'm wondering whether or not they're consulting Republicans enough to know what that turning point might be. I honestly don't know, and perhaps the press should stop calling things a turning point when they're continually discovering that they aren't to make predictions would be a fool's errand. I won't do it. But I will say that we've seen quite a bit of erosion among the president's support among Republicans. And I'm not just talking about members of the Congress who are, by the way, conducting four committee-level investigations into the president's campaign, which he's very frustrated by. And we had Donald Trump's own pollster, Tony Fabrizio, send out a tweet 
in which he ostensibly was trying to prove that the president's support is solid and Republicans have no interest in a primary challenge in 2020. Those set of tweets demonstrated two things. One, that the president's base was softer than even a lot of public policy polling had demonstrated. And two, but among a set of five challengers, mostly drawn from the Senate and including Governor Kasich among Mm -hmm. those five and the president, Donald Trump drew only 50 percent support among the universe of Republican primary voters. That's remarkable for month seven of a president's administration, and it demonstrated the precise opposite of what Tony Fabrizio set out to prove. What did you think of the Wall Street Journal editorial board's recent call for Republicans to think of Trump as a political independent, basically to ignore him and his tweets in order to move forward on priorities like uh, the budget and rewriting the tax code? Lovely daydream to think you can ignore the president of the United States. You cannot. But at the same time, Donald Trump, his instincts politically are not conservative. They're barely even Republican. They move with the wind. And if the wind moves in the direction of, for example, single-payer health care, that's the direction in which the president will move. And he will work with Democrats to achieve that victory because all he cares about are victories, not policy agendas. That's what the Wall Street Journal was warning of, that that he has no principle And as a result, he will pursue whatever policy objective is right immediately before him. And that could be a liberal victory. So then what will be the breaking point when the Republicans decide to walk away? Well, the point of diminishing returns occurs when the agenda is no longer achievable. And that would mean losing control of the House because the Senate's probably out of reach in 2018. That would be the earliest point at which we reach diminishing returns. So who are you for in 2020? (laughs) I see so much 2020 navel-gazing. Noah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Noah Rothman is associate editor of Commentary Magazine. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Micah Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan, and our show was edited by me. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Sam Baer. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter's WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. Thanks also to Andy Lancet from the WNYC archives. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.